<laughs> okay, so hello if you're listening to this. So this is by way of a very brief introduction to explain the massive plot hole that exists in our podcast series. I'm Tom Abba and he is... Walter Bjarnason. And you're going to be listening to us for the next sort of 45 minutes or so, um, talking about media forms and talking about things that interest us. But um, we didn't have a title for this podcast series for the first four or five weeks. Um, we didn't have a clue. No, we didn't have a clue what the title was going to be. Um, we used to do a podcast called This Is Not A Book that was following and reinterpreting and talking about a book we'd written and we're going about five or six years now. But this was something different. So... It took us a few weeks to come up with the title. Obviously, you're listening to this on some kind of service. You've subscribed or you're just dipping in or you downloaded the wrong podcast by accident, um, in which case, thank you and welcome. But just as an explanation, the reason that you'll see you'll hear two men talking about, in an animated fashion, the fact they don't know what this thing is called and the fact that it does have a, they have a title is a peculiar trick of what we're going to call a kind of time travel dilation thing. So we're, we're recording this now after having recorded the sixth episode in the series, in order that this can be placed back in our past on the first three or four, which, from our point of view, is in your future. So if, you, if you're confused by that, just imagine how we are. But, yeah, this is called um, Not the Darkest Timeline. And thank you for subscribing, and we'll get out of your way now. Thank you. Yes, please enjoy. Okay, so, hi. Um, my name's Tom Abba. You are... Baldur Bjarnason. And this is the this is the, the first proper podcast in a series to which we haven't actually got a title yet. So for the time being, whatever you downloaded this as, it'll sound like that. But I think the plan, um, if I can be so bold, is we're going to do a kind of uncanon, um, a, a two curmudgeonly middle-aged media specialists, literary critics, people for years and years and years, looking back at a kind of history of interactive media and picking out things that we think worked and maybe were ahead of their time, maybe pointed to things that have happened since then. And the plan is to spend sort of half an hour, 45 minutes each time, just pulling apart why we think they're important. Does that sound reasonable to you? It sounds like a plan. I should acknowledge two things. One thing that we have a little bit of a debt because it's clear in the first, the episode zero, if you like, that I've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast for the last two or three months, and that's really influenced our thinking in a way that there is something useful to be done in applying what we know and our opinions and our thoughts into this space. So if I do a little preamble and then we start the conversation rolling, um, as a way of kind of launching this. So Silent History was released in 2012, written by Eli Horowitz, Kevin Moffat, Matthew Derby, and all the act development was done by a, a Brit, Russell Quinn, who now lives in the States. It's a piece of digital media. It's, in one way, it's very conventional as a, as a reading experience. This is a set of testimonials, all written in the first person, that narrate an emerging story that runs forward into a kind of future history. What's interesting about it, I think, is one, the way it was released and the way it's constricted, and also the way it which engages with a kind of extended narrative, which is sort of problematic in how it's 
how it's constructed and how it's used within the app, but actually does, for me at least, interestingly point to a way of kind of mitigating user engagement and a kind of, I won't say a kind of shared world authorship, but a way of bringing your readers into the development of a storyable space. I don't think it was clear. clear. So it's an app that was tied in with a book. I think it's very easy for people who weren't familiar with it to not realize that it could by the yeah it's, it's it was a app delivered for tablets it's an app delivered for tablets and it only exists in its first iteration it only exists as an app oh. and that's what it's really important to say is that um that there, there is a book version which i have bumped there we are in front of me which is a big weighty traditionally published by who was the publisher jonathan cape is my edition in 2014 which which collates all of the testimonials all the first ones and adds a little bit of kind of contextual stuff but no, the initial edition, the initial edition, uh, the first version of it is entirely oh. digital. It only exists as an iOS app. I think it was iOS only rather than iOS and Android. And yeah, that's it's it is, and I think arguably importantly, it's complete in and of itself in that form. It it, it doesn't extend into yep. other media, it doesn't kind of require the the presence of a book. It is one of those things that's okay. And this is why I want to talk about it. This this is a piece of storytelling that is designed to work within this digital space. Yeah, there's no a transmedia gimmick to get you to draw you into multiple platforms and uh, like. Uh... It's not. Although it does something interesting with transmedia, and we'll, we'll come on to that in a minute. It does something that we, which sort of borders into transmedial, what you might call sort of transmedial space in how it how it reaches out from a central core. And this actually, and again, sorry, we're prefacing by saying we're going to talk about this in a moment. I think there is something interesting here about what we might call within transmedia, the problem of the primary narrative, as in which which bit are you meant to read, which bit requires you to be read that, to read, to yeah. understand the story. And actually, in a sense, then, what is the purpose of the other stuff? What's the, what's the, what's the, the point of any, I mean, this isn't for this particular piece, but you know, doing podcasts, adding other material, using Twitter accounts, Silent History for me kind of problematizes but does answer some of those questions and starts to deal with them. This won't be true of everything we talk about, but it's, it's important to say here that it is still available. Um, you can buy the whole thing as a complete version. When it was initially released and the piece came out in 2012, it had some press originally. Eli Horowitz had been McSweeney's art director for a long time, I think, and then became McSweeney's publisher. So had, I guess, a sort of an element of pedigree in the field of looking at experimental storytelling at, you know, very highly designed form. So it had a bit of class. You know, I had a, he had a bit of clout, had a bit of way in. So yeah, it had some pre-publicity, but it, it turned, it, it arrived, it sits there. Once you get past the opening screen, what you have is a, is a screen. I'm looking at it on an iPad now split into two halves. The top half is a series of circles is the best way to describe it. Each of which is split into 20 sort of segments. So they're a, they're a circle that's got a circle around it. There's a technical term for this, but they're basically the little pies. If you can go back to imagining Trivial Pursuit boxes, are just the edge around that. There is a series of these. Each one in the center has a date or a run of dates. So the first the first set run from 2011 to 2020. You can scroll to the next set, which run from 2021 to 2027. Then 2028, 2033, then 2033, 2039, then 2040 has its own set of 20, and then finishing with 2040, 2041. Below that, well, in the middle bar, there is the name of the app, and below that is a map. And all of those things, to me, are useful in the way 
as a reader, as somebody interested in the form, and both as a reader in the way I approached that. So the first thing that the top layer signaled to me was structurally, this is going to follow, I won't say a standard storytelling structure, but there's an element of kind of predetermined structure in it, in that we our first chapter is going to span nine years. Our second chapter is going to span seven or eight. Our following one, five, then six again. What important for, what was important for me was then the chapter that hits 2040 felt like it felt like someone's prefiguring there's going to be a climax. There's going to be a point to this that we're not just going to take you on a journey that goes plop, 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 and explores this, but a sense to which in a kind of Aristotelian structural form or Freytag's triangle, this is going to rise and there's going to be a point where everything happens. And then at the end, it's going to fall away because the last the last chapter prefigures is only going to be two years. So as a reader, what that gave me, and I remember this really vividly, was a sense of confidence in, and it sounds glib to say they know what they're doing, but structurally, they do know what they're doing. There is a, there is a, there is a, an order to this. There is a sense to which, as writers, and again, this is important at the start, not knowing whether the thing, the whole thing was pre-written, how much of this was going to kind of emerge as it was a writing project, but at least there was a sense of structure that the this was going to accord to things that we were familiar with in that respect. I mean, I remember when it came out because it came out shortly after I started working for Unbound at the time, and it was it actually started a lot of discussion within the publishing industry because the as the as many industries that have been disrupted you know quotation marks over the past few years there there's always a discussion about how to engage with digital and how to co- like circumvent the disruption by doing something new and bespoke and silent history was it was both cited as an example of what to do, but also of what not to do, because I remember at least some of the argument was that it has an inherent level of linearity that meant that it 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 the, it didn't benefit as much from a digital interface as many other works would have, and that it or another way to put it, it didn't really lose much. Once it got translated to a, a book form, okay. I'm not convinced by that myself, sure. because my impression was that one of the things it cleverly did is it. One of the problems with like traditional hypertext is basically just design. It's a question of like how do you take this structure or a narrative structure and design uh, and it, and most of them you could take the same uh, hypertext with the same structure and the same narrative and just give it a nice user interface and graphical design by somebody who knows how to design for mm. um, reading, which most hypertext authors don't. Uh, and yeah. I, I kind of get the sense that that's what happened with silent history is that it's, in, it's under, underneath, it has a level of linearity to it, but it not necessarily... And it's uh, it's just well designed that surfaces the inherent structure. Completely, I, I would completely agree, and I, I would have real issue with. Um, and equally, this is maybe speaks to um, my yours and my um, reactions to Unbound as a publisher, or where, <laughs> no, that's, that's not fair. But, but to ways of to ways of critically approaching things that exist outside of the mainstream. 
and Unbound is a mainstream publisher. And you know, regardless of what they do and the model, they they produce books. They produce things that are very much don't scare the horses. This is a thing you recognise. Their, their model is interesting, and we can probably talk about that in a, in a different episode. But no, I think that yes, it is inherently linear. I think that's a really good thing in what it did because it doesn't try and do. It doesn't at the outset. It doesn't offer bells and whistles. It doesn't say there's going to be anything different here. There's one thing it's going to do, and I guess the other thing to say about silent history is the the installments are daily. So once you could pay at the very start for a chapter. Yeah. So you'd start by paying for chapter one, which would be twenty the, the segments that run from twenty eleven to twenty twenty, or you could buy the whole thing, which is important in terms of the the amount of access you've got, and I'll come on to that in a minute. But so you you were asked to engage either on a very limited basis that you've got chapter one, then you would buy chapter two and buy chapter three. And these were these were kind of, a, they were a couple of pounds, they'd be $2.50, $3 for each chapter. So you were, you were investing something. Then each morning, I mean, it was lunchtime by the time I got them, but it was, I, I guess the thing was time for either Pacific time or Eastern Standard time. Each morning, one of those little kind of pies would illuminate and you'll get the next bit and it will build up over the 20 days. So during uh, chapter one would take you 20 days to read because you were you were allowed to read or you were given a short testimonial, a short kind of installment every morning. These, my recollection is they ran every day. They didn't ignore weekends. Um, at the end of each chapter, there was a pause. Usually, I mean, again, this is recollection back to sort of thing eight years ago. There was about a week or a week or so's pause, which allowed you to catch up if you hadn't caught up on the reading. So you weren't, you had to read each bit before you got the next bit, but obviously, you know, you might have missed two or three days. You then read one the next morning, the next one comes out. So it might be, there was a sense of, there was a sense of sympathy being the wrong word, um, allowance for the reader, allowance for life to get in the way that you weren't, this was designed for a commute. It was designed to sort of pop into your in, your inbox virtually, I guess, in a way, every morning. They were short. Each testimonial is about, I think, sort of 200 to 400 words. That's probably, there's a more accurate way of kind of narrowing that down. And what they did was build up a world. They built up a set of characters who were commenting on this narrative as it emerged. It's probably also, just in terms of its, we've talked about structure, which is something I end up, I realize I do an awful lot when I talk about digital products. Plot-wise, actually, the plot is relevant to how this works. So the the silent history of the title is a generator. It concerns a generation of children born without the ability to speak. Um, or to respond to speech in that manner, hence the silent history. So it begins in that first nine-year chunk as these are all kids, yeah. and it's their parents' reactions, these are sociologists' reactions, these are child specialists' reactions, these are politicians' reactions, and, you, and you're getting a really – what you get over those 20 little segments of a chapter, you get a really quite rounded sense of of a sort of soci- societal, cultural, institutional, unknown, a sense of panic – and for me, at least, Prince says more about my my origins as a as a reader. A real sense of John Wyndhamness to it that these, at least within the, at least within the world, and because and this is also the thing about first person narration, because you're not then allowed. There is no omniscient narrator. You're getting you're getting testimonials from people. There wasn't a sense of, and we know the government is doing this, or we know that. It was it was very much rooted in these are these are reports from people, and the strength of I think the thing in that first chapter I think is the extent to which the the writing team built up consistent characterization that there were there were different voices who reacted in different ways because they had I mean it's a simple way of saying it, a different stake 
in those kids' lives. I've basically noted sort of two strands that I want to pull on here. The first strand is what you is a direct continuation of what you were talking about in terms of voices, and one of the ways that one of the traditional and uh, sort of ways of uh, well, not traditional, but one of the structuralist uh, ways of analysing novelistic structures is like polyglossia or heteroglossia, which is a fancy way of saying that it's a narrative structure that encompasses uh, multiple kinds of voices, each existing at uh, each voice representing a position in society. And so that the narrative structure as a whole managed to, to represent a discourse for an issue. And this is basically yeah. the, at, at the heart of M.M. Bakhtin's and some of the Russian formalists' analysis of how novels and satire work in society. And it sounds like that one of the, yeah. one of the things that they, they've managed to do there is they've managed to, to, to replicate that structure, that of representing a larger society and how would it, what, it, what it feels like to experience these events at each layer of society, but, but using a, 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 a hypermedia interactive environment and not the, nov, uh, the linear, uh, like novelistic structure. And the linearity of it actually um, sort of brings me to my second point, which is, I think that um, a lot of people in our position tend to have an all-or-nothing view of linearity. There's not an acknowledgement of that linearity is experienced in multiple different ways. And that's especially something that's happening today in, in if you look at streaming platforms, in that the you have the linearity of a TV series now is a choice. It's not a um it's not a a, a, a given or a certainty for any given um, series, it's um, Disney cho- chose to turn The Mandalorian into a serialized weekly experience. Netflix chooses to release some of the uh, series, um, uh, some of the series entirely in one go. And in some of their series, like with um, some of their more um, competition or game oriented series, they actually list them in reverse order mm-hmm. so that the new series, uh, new season comes first oh, before the yeah. first season so the it's linear but the way you experience linearity is line, uh, the linearity of the of the work is a choice of the author and i think that's something that's uh, that that sure. in 2012 would have been one of the sort of early of the modern examples of somebody choosing to be linear but being thoughtful about it and choosing how linearity is expressed in digital, because it turns out there's more than one way to be linear. There's more than one way to, to, to be linear. No, completely. And, and the other, and this is my other, my other counter slightly to the unbound argument, is there is something really, I thought there's something really valuable about getting a, getting a small chunk of narrative and waiting yeah. a day. And getting another small chunk of narrative and waiting a day. It's interesting. I've had a conversation. I'm starting to have conversations with with somebody in publishing about, and the simple way of describing it is: how do you make this a habit? How do you, if you're trying to do digital as or digital storytelling with a longer form, how do you break that down to elements that become habitual? And I think silent history points the way to, at least for me. And these were, I was getting it slightly imperfectly because I'm in the UK. So I was getting it sort of four or five hours after its initial kind of 
you know, it, it's targeted release time. But that became a thing every day that I would pick up, a, and you know, there would, there would be a little ping that my my, my my tablet or my phone would would alert me, and I knew there was a thing to read, and I'd try and find time to do it. And then I'd also be reflecting on that. So as opposed to having a novel, and of course I can sit with a novel and go, I will only read a testimonial per day. And I can absolutely, with the novel form, replicate the experience of reading silent history and run all the way through. But because it's a novel, because it has it has it has the structure of that, I can run through it. I can breeze through, and it, it, it's also it's not natural to no. you, the, the like for, uh, form follows function and function follows form. In that, what if you have a book in front of you, you're engaged. It's it's completely unnatural for you to create your own pacing by breaking off and yes. and pausing until the ne- next day it's just it goes against the grain of the of the medium and this is also about how you write novels i mean i just this morning i finished reading andrew michael hurley's deloney um which should be recommended i mean i'm just i've got an interest in english folk horror and the gothic at the moment but the Loney um won the costa won the costa first novel award in 2015 i picked up a second hand copy because i've read his book that's just come out it's absolutely structured in and this is some that's really stupid thing to say it's the it's the opposite of the silent history it's structured like a novel and that's a really dumb thing to say in a podcast that's going to deal with literature but it takes till about a halfway through for the thing to get going the first half is all atmosphere it's all it's telling you things about characters introducing the way which this family and it's this kind of extended religious family interact but it's it's halfway through the thing actually starts to move and when it starts to move you know i'm I'm race i'm I'm not i read fairly quickly anyway but i was enjoying the first chunk the first half rather but happily reading as you say, a section in my own time, in my own pace. When it comes to the last bit, I'm running through because suddenly this thing picks up pace. And actually the story's not moving. The story's moving at exactly the same glacial pace. And it's incredibly glacial <laughs> in terms of what happens. The whole thing takes place with the exception of the kind of the framing sequences, which are a number of years in the future or a number of years they're in our presence as things take place in the 1970s. The, the, the story itself takes place over about four or five days in Easter or at Easter rather in a small part of the English coastline. And the second half is almost slower in a sense than the first half, but things happen. And so I'm, as a, as a reader of a novel, I am engaged at exactly the right mode of reading a Gothic novel. I'm suddenly, there is an acceptance this has gone beyond atmosphere and gone beyond building and gone beyond just giving me a sense of who these characters are to the consequences are starting to come out. I'm getting a little more connection to the framing bits in the present down to the stuff that's in the past and the silent history does none of that it does it's entirely it's slowly told it's very gradually told these are important to say thinking about hypermedia it is obviously it's a we could describe it as a hypertext in terms of it is read digitally and you can click things and that's one way of looking at hypertext obviously the more kind of accepted the evident way is that there are links within the structure back to other bits there is a there is an inherent unlinearity in reading. Those now, I might drop Russell an email. My recollection, and it should be said, Russell Quinn is responsible for the whole design of the thing. Um, Eli, as I understand, Eli, Kevin, and Matthew came up with a story structure where they want to tell a story this way. The whole, the things we talked about about interface and about reader reader engagement are entirely down to Russell Quinn. My recollection is that. By the time you got to sort of chapters four or five, so this is, you know, we're now looking at the bits that take place not in 2011, but now run into sort of 2039. At that point, we started to have internal hyperlinks. So the so there are in that 20, in that first 20 segments, 
to use a kind of trivial pursuit little block mode. There's a better way of describing it, but there are no hyperlinks. There were no hyperlinks in that section, but there are there are recurring characters. Each person gets two or three testimonials in that first year block. So the idea is even though new characters then come in as you work your way forward in history, characters recur and characters evolve in their relationship to these children to what happens and to how these things to where the story goes but it wasn't until quite a way through that's my recollection that we started to get internal hyperlinks so we could go back and track back through that character's evolution of thought evolution of kind of history with them and i think that as a reader was also really important that it it denied me this in the first instance but only when it became relevant or it became useful to be able to go through and go okay i can't remember what so and so i have a recollection of what so and so started as in this thing but i'm now four chapters in then i can kind of bounce my way back through their sections and then then that structure and that that was really sensitive to the form i thought yeah and it sounds like well first off it should be noted that a a work that is only a hypertext in its latter half is still a hypertext it's like doesn't disqualify it as a hypertext it just means that it's thoughtfully used and i think it's a actually a very interesting use of hypertext in that the the once you get the further in you get into the work the more complex it ha- the the pre- everything that's come before it becomes and the more help you need in to navigate it so it actually it's i think it's a very interesting tactic and something that would be interesting to see others play around with to minimize the use of hypertext hyperlinks until they're really 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 useful which is usually in the latter half yeah. when it when you use it to tie the history together and like help you remember it's it's a bit like you don't add recaps uh, sort of like uh, uh, recap segments at the start of the first episode of a tv series <laughs> you only start them uh, towards the, uh, to the later episodes when there's a turn to recap, because otherwise you'd be lost. And there's a point to recap that point. You know, there's, there's a reason you may have forgotten what... Sorry, I'm also watching The West Wing again, <laughs> just because I feel a sense of despair. But there's a reason at that point to understand to understand Leo's relationship to the president, relationship to the MS disclosure. If you've not seen The West Wing, I'm sorry. But you know, a whole set of things that run into there. The recaps there are helpful. Um, but you're right. With the silent history, it is it is really sensitive to the reader, and it's really it's really attendant to the way in which an audience is reading this. So, on the one level, I think everything you've said is completely true. There's another level, which is in a way about familiarity with the form that it doesn't. And I've mentioned I've used this phrase before. It doesn't scare the horses in the first bit. It's very very familiar. It's very safe. So if you want this thing to be reviewed by you know the literary press, then they they'll happily they make me sniffy about the way it's structurally going to work or the way it's operating. But actually, it's very familiar. It's not distracting anybody. It's guiding you into a space. It's holding your hand, and it's doing that thing that novels do. In terms of you know there is a there is a shape to this thing. There are three hundred and forty eight pages. There is a there are chapter breaks. It's doing all that that we know how to do because we know how to read a paper form really sensibly, really gently, and really effectively in its structure. And you're right, it doesn't bring in hypertext as as a device until it's helpful, until it's useful to do that, and that then adds gently to the reading experience because yes i've been reading this thing for then 60 days or 80 days but i my memory isn't 
and nobody's memory is perfect, but that's not true. And my memory is largely fallible. I'm going to need, oh, it's going to be helpful for me to track back through without spinning these little circles and finding out where T Green appears in the first, second, or third chapter, because I want to see suddenly they've done something that feels out of character or feels dramatic. So I want to then track back through and get that. That, to me, was really, really sensible and really, really effective. The other bit, of silent history that really marks it and this is again this is my semi-successful thing about it is it it extended its central narrative and this i think happened when you bought the entire thing in advance it may have happened when you bought each chapter at a certain point but my recollection is certainly that when you when you committed to the whole book and you paid your six quid or eight dollars whatever it might have been you were invited to submit what they called field reports what they were so this obviously this is a story at least in the first it's taking place in a recognizable united states and reflecting a recognizable world you know we and okay let's talk a little bit about science fiction and john clue other people have also remarked that every that science fiction is always written about the time you're in it's very difficult to write science fiction that's not reflective of the history the culture the the concerns that you're you're experiencing right at the moment i mean in weirdly what's been termed as kind of cli-fi climate fiction and jeff Vandermeer is a very good exponent of this is almost we're, we're seeing that kind of rush right to the present and we're seeing you know that's incredibly that stuff is potent and it's deliberately potent and for me incredibly because you know i have children scary in terms of the way it moves moves us forward and the way it faces what's around us but it's doing something that science fiction has always done and silent history is no exception the fact it uses children who are markedly different and there's a layer of kind of reading that as its kind of central metaphor for what's going to happen in the story the fact that it it plays with kind of familiar-ish science fiction tropes it does say things more complicated than that it grounds you really helpfully and it's obviously it's that first chunk is set in a period running from 2011 to 2020 which obviously is about to be next year or this year depending when you're hearing this field reports were were structured as a way of inviting the readership to to extend that world is a way is a better way of doing it than i could do and it, they, obviously they're not the first piece of digital media to do that i think these were pretty successful in its structure or in the manner in which it is what what you what you got was my recollection is a sort of between four and eight page pdf which was a writer's guide it was a this is how you know we will anybody is welcome to do this or anybody who's maybe bought the whole thing this is our guide this is what we want you to do so i think you know the they're written the first person they should be they should be fixed to a location so and they are i'm but again I'm casting back eight years and I need to, I couldn't find my copy of the writer's guide. They are reflective of the chapter that you're in at the time. So yeah, you're writing, you're, you're invited to submit a piece of first person fiction within this world, pinned to a location. And there were, there were kind of suggestions about the kind of location that you chose. So this is about fundamentally society's reaction to a generation of children who are different so that there's a thing about thinking about where you might want your reader to be stood where you might because you're going to pin these to a gps point so that these are whether they're near playgrounds by busy roads by whatever those places are that you can reflect society and reflect the world around you and what they did was obviously kind of engage with what we now see as locative media and um, pervasive media they really engage with geography because 
we might come and talk about this different later, but there is something really powerful about writing for a space and a very specific space in that you, if you're writing a novel, you can reasonably assume your reader is sat somewhere vaguely comfortable, or at least they can hold a book in their hand. That's probably about as much as you know. You're writing something that's pinned to a location. You know what they're looking at. You know, you can write knowing or at least guiding their eye line and guiding what they can see beyond the page in front of them. So if you're writing this piece about, uh, I mean, let's say, for example, there is a there is one child out of 60 in a playground and one, that one child is one of these silent these silence and what you're writing about is a kind of a layered kind of societal parental reaction to the being the cuckoo in the nest if you like and that's the thing you want to write in your 300 words then you're going to direct your reader's gaze to a playground you know you're written to and you're it it's a suspension of disbelief it's but you but the extra tool you've got is that you know what they're looking at and even you know there, there are then layers to which you not know not knowing for example when your reader's going to read this, how you deal with, is the playground busy at the time they're reading it? Is it empty? Is it a very cold winter's day and there's no kid there? Is it really the height of summer? Is it early in the morning? Late? All those things are, are tricks that you know we've I've certainly dealt with in the past. But these things, I think the, what was really, really interesting about this is there was a framework for writing in that space and a way of saying, we're going to edit this and we're going to work with you on this, but this is how we'd like you to contribute toward to this narrative. And I thought that was really, really, really interesting as, as yeah, as a reader, as a creator in this space that they allow, they explicitly invited that kind of contribution. I think it's problematic. I think without a doubt it's, I mean, there are, as my understanding is there are about 300 field reports added to the app during its run. That's 300 field reports that were edited. Let's assume that some, that they all required some manner of edit or some were rejected outright. But then in order to kind of engage successfully with your readership, you need to engage successfully. You need to reply to them and say, this is why we're not putting this one. So yeah, without a doubt, there is a layer of work in there. It was really clear in the writing guide as a reader that it was not automatic. You, you don't submit this thing here as a ping four days later. There is a process that we don't know how many we're going to get. So we're going to be upfront about this and say this might not work. And I think that creates an extra layer of work. I think what it does, and this is interesting about the way maybe that the team building this were maybe looking at their their business plan. Let's be blunt about this, their means of engagement. Without a doubt, what they do then is they've built, they've established 300 dedicated readers. I mean, that's a small number, but it's where you start. Small acorns trees grow forests they've they've gained 300 readers who've had their work included as part of this overarching narrative which is beautifully written and really nicely done you've made 300 super fans and that's you know we're going to come up we'll probably come under that another point but that i think is a really important part of how do you bridge the i don't know how this works thing the problem of how do you get engagement in this and how do you how do you get the advocates and how do you get the the people who will will look we hope critically at your work but we'll always champion the intention we'll always say no there is some really valuable stuff happening here and let's engage with it and let's let's promote it and let's move it going forward mm-hmm. that's something we can look at differently and look at in a variety of different forms so, and this is this is not a problem problem it's a problem in the form and i'm really it's one of the things i've I, I struggle with this a little bit, but when I talk about silent history, um, you have to be in that location to read the field report. So if that was actually said, my second gripe yeah. I was going to bring up. Uh, yeah, but no, you can go no, ahead. No, well, no, it's. I mean, it's. I think it's a problem. I think without a doubt, it's a. It's a thing. 
they reward effort in that the readers are writing them for that space. They demand effort from remote readers, and you have to go to those places to see them. There is a as a as a remote reader, there's a sense of the world to them. When you get the, this first bit that has the circles with the story structure on, and there's a title below that, there is a map, and the map is zoomable to the whole world. And what the map is is the location of the field reports. I think it's problematic that they, if these add to the narrative, if these are extending the world in some way, coming back to this thing in transmedia, the problem with the primary text is they are always going to be secondary and tertiary text because physically, unless I've got very frequent flyer air miles and I don't care about the environment, I'm not going to read most of these. And I, I, I'm not saying that's a problem narratively. I think it's, I think it's a, I think it has to be a problem in the accessibility of the entire text. Um, I mean, personally, I this is something I've I always have a huge problem with anything that's located like strictly location based like that because I grew up in the middle of bloody nowhere. Yeah. I, like uh, I I was born and raised in Iceland, and the times when I lived in the UK when I was a kid was in a small village outside of Lancaster, and it's. Like the, this, this notion of having parts of a story that uh, is only accessible or understandable if you're in some big city has is something I've always experienced. It's something I've always just like I've known of books and movies and art shows that are just in places where I could never see myself ever reaching, and it's it it there's an emotional. Um, cost to it where I go like now nah, you you're being a dick by doing that and I might I have a I have an emotional response to tying stories like that to a specific location because as somebody who grew up in the middle of bloody nowhere it's like yeah you're specifically excluding me I know it's not logical but that is is what it's it feels like, and I suspect a lot of people who grew up in the sticks or in in isolated places or outside of big cities, they're going to have a similar sort of reaction to these sort of uh, addition to these stories. Counter to this is obviously if you're in the sticks reading this, you are just as able to write one of these things and pin it down as someone living in the middle of San Francisco. I completely recognise what you're saying though, and I think that's worth unpacking another point about how 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 different media forms permit a kind of recognition of yourself in the text. Because my my thing is, yeah, I grew up in Grimsby, which is on the north, not quite northeast, north Midlands, east coast of not England. Exactly, a massive metropolis. It's not a massive metropolis. I didn't see my I don't see myself. My, my record, I didn't see myself recognised in fiction, in children's fiction. There are there are some exceptions to that. There are some really clever children's writers, and there's something I ask first years. And this is probably it's probably in my PhD somewhere, or certainly in this is not a book. Is that where is Enid Blyton's famous five set? And it's this is in a, it's in the tone of a lecture about how do you use space and how do you use geography? And there are, I mean, okay, recognizably it's probably in Dorset because she's writing for there are geographical locations and there are castles and there's a coastline that's recognizably, but importantly within the text, and someone can prove me wrong, I don't think she ever says that. And for me at least. Famous Five was set in my childhood. It's set in a kind of recognition, and for me, it was always set in Norfolk because that's where we went on holiday. Because it's set in a, a space. That, it's a space that is other, 
it's not where I live. It's a space that is that has the the kind of the offer of something that is not not completely familiar and not completely recognisable as my everyday, but recognisable enough that I don't I feel that there's a connection to it. But absolutely, the you know metropolitan fiction stuff when I got when I got beyond that kind of early years into my teens, I didn't see myself in those stories at all. You know the I don't know what it would have been like growing up in London and and reading. An awful, you know, fiction in my teens that was set or recognisably set in in the capital, and those locations, and that there is there is something really interesting about a kind of democratisation or the potential democratisation of storytelling that this kind of what we're talking about digital media or local allows. But you're right, it's it's not unproblematic, mm. and certainly well, nothing is. Well, yeah, and silent history is hugely problematic in how it deals with those, but I think is interesting in that it was for certainly my recollection is one of the first to properly invite a kind of curated and you know the other example that springs to mind is a million penguins which is probably mid-2000s maybe slightly earlier which did a kind of similar similar with a very small s a kind of invited storytelling in a collaborative form and a kind of wiki but didn't but had none of the editorial process or the editorial was applied after the fact in an attempt to control it whereas this is very structured very a sense of we are we're opening the gates but we're going we're going to edit you you're going to get the experience of being edited by a professional these are short there's a very strict guide about how these work but there is still we're going to treat you as a writer i think was also the appeal in this that this is we we are the door is open a bit you can come in and play in this world and this is how we want you to play but you get to add on to this so it's it's not I've been actually. I've been interested to know whether somebody has catalogued all of them. I don't, one thing I haven't looked for, but I will do after we've finished recording this, is go and find the Reddit site for silent history, because it wouldn't surprise me if somebody's done the thing that you can't do and made a version of the map that is that is clickable from anywhere in the world. And I can read the stuff that's in Queen. I can get the stuff in San Francisco. It's one of the lovely things about the web is that sometimes if the work is interesting enough. People who fill in the gaps, and it's 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 one of the lovely things about the web. In that, it's also one of the terrifying things because sometimes they have very odd ideas of how to fill in the gaps. Oh, yeah. But you're gonna you're gonna have people filling in the gaps, and you know that's one of the great things. I was wondering if I could ask like one final question, like something to. And I, well, throughout this, I've been wondering in that you know it has a lot of really interesting ideas. A lot of them are like good takes of classic ideas from hypermedia, some of them are original. And I've been wondering, why haven't we seen more like Silent History since it first came out? I mean, my my instant reaction, we touched on it 10 minutes ago, is it, I suspect it was expensive in terms of the engagement. Although I think, and this also speaks to my suspicion, my suspicion, my problem with publishing, in publishing being so structured around the production of the physical thing in your hand that actually there is a lo- there are loads of costs built into that that are i won't say omitted but are certainly not f- okay they're usefully brought into the argument when somebody in the press asks why is an ebook more or less the same cost as a print book and you know actually print is a very the printing is a very small part of the overall cost of production but in terms of digital in terms of engagement with the digital to do it properly i don't think it's that much more expensive i think the 
The problem with digital experimentation is it gets labeled as experimentation and the more expensive it is and the more unorthodox it is, then the more people, the more publishers at least are wary of it. You know, Silent History was not produced by a major publisher. Obviously, the novelization was picked up by Cape, Jonathan Cape and put out. But the the thing exists outside of that medium. Ina Horowitz, the Sudden Oak, I think is a production company, went on and did something called the Pickle Index three or four years later. They got slightly distracted as Eli went on and made a podcast called Homecoming, which was hugely successful and went to be an Amazon TV series. So I think yeah, that it's, it's not in a weird way. I'm not suggesting that's a way of, and we can look at other things like Arcadia, we can look at other ex- experimentations, and that's absolutely a relevant question. I don't think it's I don't I don't think the 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 lack of return to the silent history points to a failure um, of the form. I think at the moment it feels like it feels like they opened a door and nobody has quite figured out how to go through that door or nobody's quite had the money to do it or the willpower or the structure to do it. I don't think it means you can't go through that door again um, because I think one of one of my one of the critiques maybe of of a very fragmented software development industry, at least in terms of the things we're interested in we're talking about here, is that no one's paying attention to process and no one's recording process because we're not trying no one's no one's requiring this to be done at scale. Whereas actually in terms of publishing and publishing absolutely being process driven, is that it becomes absolutely necessary to look at process because without process being as streamlined and as efficient as possible, you're never going to make a paperback for seven ninety nine. You know, everything's going to be well we're we're back to artisan bookmaking which is a place i come from but these things are expensive because we don't do at scale and maybe one of the challenges is to think about is to think about the process of making something successful and not to repeat and this is one of we're going to come on to this i'm sure at some other point i have i have i have a a difficulty in thinking about a repeatable form because i'm worried that we end up pigeonholing down to something that might look might look like for example choose your own adventure being a form I'm really interested in a repeatable process of figuring out how you streamline the development of this thing and delivery and the outcome without dictating what this final thing is. And that's a much trickier problem um, to unpick. And it's like um, software development has obsessed about process over the past, everything from agile to waterfall, and they're all obsessed with process and they still make absolutely rubbish apps or just fail completely. So it's it's definitely not a solved problem. We can't blame anybody who's making interactive storytelling for not having solved that problem. It's like, if you do, you're probably gonna get rich. <laughs> what I, I guess the one thing I wanna say about silent history to close is, and this is because it was announced today, Alistair Gray, died who was a scottish artist writer visionary there's a quote i picked up about an hour before we started recording this work as if you live in the early days of a better nation i think that's one of the things that silent history does for me in that it it takes for in its richness and its appreciation of the medium it's telling the story in and the way it points to other things, I think it does largely sit there as the early days work that exists in the early days of a better nation in that it reflects reflects what's good about this medium rather than what's clunky or what's just aped from another form. And in a sense, that's probably where I want to finish this first proper episode and say, I think maybe we are trying to find the work that points to a better nation, a better way of thinking about media about storytelling about digitally native storytelling about work that exploits what's unique about this particular form 
and that absolutely nods to the novel, to film, to television, but that appreciates the difference rather than simply kind of becoming a bland photocopy of the other formats.